Good morning. I'm Swami C, for those of you who don't remember. <laughs> I, uh, I'm freshly back from North Carolina and Tampa, Florida, and uh, had, a, had a great time in both places, actually. So, but it's always nice to walk back to the more familiar. Anyway, uh, this week, uh, actually, I, I started digging in the Bible, actually, a little bit to talk with one of, one of the guys here earlier in the week. And what we found, I got so into and got so inspired by that I, I kind of based uh, today's ideas off of that. And uh, with Mother's permission, we'll jump into it. If I don't get the whole lecture finished, it's going to be a lecture on the yamas and niyamas. If I get the whole lecture finished, it'll be kind of a, a progression of spiritual life from the basics to the final product. So it really depends on what happens. I can never tell. I just know that usually I get about 30% through my notes and it's over. Uh, the buzzer rings and I have to sit down. So uh, we'll see. It'll be one of those two lectures today. But before I start, I'm going to read to you from uh, Hafiz. And for those of you who have been coming for a while, uh, you haven't heard this poem. It's, it's a new one today. It's called Just Sit There. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring you some trays of food and, and something that you might like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. I like that poem because it brings to mind something uh, that I, I mentioned before is a big concern in my life and, uh, and seems to be sort of a common problem. And that is this idea that we've settled for things as they are, that we've become kind of okay with the relative. You know, we'll take a little misery, we'll take a little happiness, you know, we'll take a little this and a little that, and just kind of plod along. And, and uh, really, until we get into a hard spot, we really don't think too much about it. And uh, it's, it's okay to be like that until you realize what you've, what you've been missing or what you've missed, and then it's, it's not okay. You know, I, I was watching uh, this week some YouTube videos, <laughs> and uh, apparently there's a, these pair of glasses by Ektachrome or something that help people who are colorblind to actually see the colors that they've not been able to see. And so there's a whole bunch of these videos on there of people putting these glasses on for the first time and having their reactions to seeing color for the first time. And I'm an old sap, there's no doubt. Uh, but I sit there and just watch this, just, you know, <laughs> teary-eyed and like, oh my God, that's so sweet. Because these people have these beautiful reactions. You know, they're all adults. Most of them are, well, yeah, they're all adults. And they've all been colorblind their whole life. They've all functioned. Life has been just fine for them. Everything's perfectly functional for them. And then they come along and someone gifts them a pair of these glasses and they put them on. And inevitably, they, they don't say anything. Their mouths drop open and they just, they're just looking, they're just looking at, at everything, at themselves, at, at everything. And, and inevitably, somebody hands them something colorful, you know, to, 
to look at, and they're just overwhelmed. Most of the time, they begin crying, uh, and, and the, you know, they run off and they point at colors, and they're like, what, what color is this? This is green. Green? I never imagined it was so vivid, you know. Oh, this is red. I, I guess that would be red. It's so... Anyway, you can see that, that, that a whole new dimension has been opened up to them, and a very deep and profound one, a very meaningful one. We, we live with color, well, most of us. I know there's some colorblind folks in here, but uh, most of us live with that every day, and we don't think about it much because we've put it in the ordinary. That's, we've talked about that. That's the problem with the relative world. Everything becomes ordinary. We can settle for anything at some point, and we do. And uh, something comes along where we catch a glimpse or we get an idea or, or maybe have some small experience or... Something and we get the idea that whoa, well maybe maybe I don't have the whole picture. Maybe everything isn't. Uh, maybe I don't know or haven't seen all that there is to see. And it, it prompts a change in us. It prompts a, a searching or a looking or trying to find something more. And so I want to explore this problem. How do we break out of this normalcy? How do we get to see outside of this box uh, of gray that we've become very accustomed to? That we've uh, become all too uh, sleepy in and accepted. And uh, I was looking through, I'm going to read some very familiar scriptures uh, and, and statements from some of the sages, uh, but then I'm also going to try and pull out some, some different directions than what uh, I've normally taken with them before anyway. So at first, I'm just going to read these three, these three scriptures. One is a direct quote from Jesus. One is a direct quote from Sri Sharda Devi's last words, and one is a quote from Swami Vivekananda, all on the same topic. And uh, after I read them, I'm then going to go by, back and, and talk about them individually. They're all familiar to you, though. This is Jesus. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use to judge them, by that measure you will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust that's in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the two-by-four that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take that plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Than Sharda Devi. I tell you one thing, my child, if you want peace, do not find fault with others. Rather, see your own faults. Learn to make the world your own. No one is a stranger, my child. The whole world is your own. And then Vivekananda from Jnana Yoga. That which we have inside, we see outside. The baby has no thief inside and sees not a thief outside. So with all knowledge. Do not talk of the wickedness of the world and all of its sins. Weep that you are bound to see wickedness yet. Weep that you are bound to see sin everywhere. And if you want to help the world, do not condemn it. Do not weaken it all the more. Men are taught from childhood that they are weak and that they are sinners. Teach them that they are all glorious children of immortality, even those who are the weakest in manifestation. Let positive, strong, 
helpful thought enter into their brains from their very childhood and not weakening and paralyzing thought. So each of these, I mean, very straightforward teaching and certainly one that, that we're all extremely familiar with. But I wondered why uh, or pondered and, and just kind of sat and ruminated on this, why Jesus, uh, Holy Mother, and Vivekananda, three great sages, avatars, whatever, you, whatever your belief is around them, all speaking about the same subject and speaking about it very directly and very importantly, like this is, this is a fundamental truth. And I thought, why is it so important that the way that we treat everybody else, the way that we're talking about everybody else, the way that we think about everybody else? Why is that such a big deal? You know, it seems like we can certainly function in this world by treating people any way we want. We have some very vivid examples of that <laughs> these days. So <laughs> what is, what's the point? And I tried to put some other ideas into it, trying to ruminate about it. And I said, you know, I went to that idea where Vivekananda says, who are you to help the world? You can't help the world. God has everything under control. He's doing this world exactly as he wants this world to unfold. It is him, after all. It's a manifestation of his. He says, when you do good to others, you're really only doing good for yourself, that you're only able to help yourself, and that when you give that food to that needy person, you're being given an opportunity to worship. You're being given an opportunity to let your own nature of divine love, that nature of the divinity that is within you, it's your opportunity to let that manifest. You're not helping that person. You're simply manifesting your true nature. Love is occurring. God is manifesting. God is being made visible in that act. And so I began to wonder, this idea of being nice to everybody, not judging other people, you know, not, not being critical of other people, not making fun of you know, the way they dress or the way that they look or the way that they walk, that that must be important because it's something about me that is being wounded or being hurt by that. And I drew in that idea from uh, uh, Sri Nishagadatta, that sage from Bombay, who says, uh, along with Holy Mother also, where she says in her, in her quotes that, that this, this world, all of it is mind. This whole world is mind alone. My mind. And if that is true, then everybody in here, myself included, is carrying our own universe with us. We think it's a shared universe because we're all in the same room and we look around and see each other. But if I take any of you in this room and ask you, oh, who are your friends in here? Who lives near you? Who do you know? Who do you like? Who do you don't like? Everybody's going to have their own picture. If I ask, what do you like about this place? Why do you come to this place? Who's your favorite Swami? I'll ask you all these. There's going to be different answers for all of those. Where do you work? And so quickly, our common universe really just becomes a, a tangent of two universes touching for a moment. So we've got a, you know, about 100 universes in here tonight, touching tangent, or this morning, touching tangentially at a single point, which is this room. But it's your universe that you're carrying around. It's God looking through your mind, looking through your eyes, looking through your senses into a unique universe. And it's God alone who's looking through each one of us. And that whole process, because God, one of his fundamental qualities as such, is existence, you know, that there's an identification that happens. And we get the privilege of mistaking 
that connection of looking through the lens as being something new and something separate and something apart from God, namely a self, a me, you know, a Swami Chidbrahmananda or anybody in the room. And what happens is that what we think of ourselves, what we know about ourselves, what we assume about ourselves becomes what we assume and know about others because we don't have access to each other's mind. We don't have access to each other's backgrounds. We don't have access to each other's values. We don't know anything more than what we've been told about each other. And yet we assume that we know a lot more about each other. And that's this, the, the nature of a relative world. Now, when you think of a relative world, that doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning into it. But I was thinking this week, I was saying, well, what, when you say it's a relative world, what do you mean by that? And I always described it by taking taking two external points and say, you only know where this is because you know where this is. You know, when you tell somebody how to get to giant from here, you have to know where they are. And then you tell them relatively how to get there from their, from their perspective. So I always kept my two points out here to talk about that, but there's a fundamental truth about it. That's much more. This world is a relative world. And the one key point that makes it relative is you. You are the starting point for all of your creations, for all of your ideas. It's all in relation to you. Because you believe yourself to be male, you see female. Because you believe yourself to be gay or straight, you see gay or straight. Because you see yourself as hungry, you're, you know, that's why my mother told me never go grocery shopping when you're hungry, <laughs> you know, because the world changes, right? When the world, when you're hungry, the world changes. The world becomes flashing pizza signs and smells of donuts and things like that. When you're not hungry, when you're angry, it just becomes red lights and slow people in the fast lane and, you know, <laughs> frustration everywhere around you. When you're in a peaceful state and everything is fine, it becomes about the trees and the mountains and the beautiful sun and how wonderful it is to be alive, those kinds of things. And why? Because it's all relative to you. This, is a, this world is relative because you have an idea of what you are and you measure the world accordingly. And what you have to do in order to see God, because God is everywhere present, God is always perfect, what you have to do is get the right notion of self. Which is why Jesus says right here, he says, you hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to see what somebody, what somebody else's issues are. To focus here, remove the dirt from the lens. If you realize yourself to be God, realize yourself to be divine, realize that you are just a manifestation of that beloved, of that infinite self, then you'll see that self in everyone. You'll see that self everywhere around you. And that's why Jesus is saying and why Mother is saying and why Vivekananda is saying the best way to find out how your lens is scratched or how it's warped or how it's not seeing clearly is to, 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 under, to note the faults that you see in the people around you. Because you're, you, you should be seeing God. That should be the first thing you see when you look at the folks around you. You should see divinity first. If your lens was clear, you would see a manifestation of love in everything that they were doing. You would be able to clearly see what it is that they love that's motivating their action. And it wouldn't matter what they were doing. For a divine soul, he sees everything from that perspective. 
And so if you want to know where to begin in your spiritual life or, or where to keep going, where to go from here in your spiritual life, think of that person in your office that irritates you the, the most and have a great time writing a list of exactly what it is about them that you just despise. You know, oh, I hate it when... <laughs> and just go through, put that list together, and then put at the top, say, dear self, and then sign it at the bottom, and mail it to yourself. <laughs> and when that comes back to you in the mail, open it up and read a list of how your lens is dirtied. What are your faults? What are the things that you've mistaken about yourself that has caused you to see these things in others? And how do we know that? Because of this whole idea here when, when, when Vivekananda says the baby sees no thief. He has no thief inside. So a thief can walk into a baby's room and steal all of his pampers and walk out, and the baby's just going to be like, mm, no problem. Yeah, take the pampers. <laughs> no problem at all. Because he doesn't have a thief. He doesn't understand the, the idea of me and mine, first of all, but certainly doesn't understand the idea of they and theirs <laughs> when the thief walks in and takes it. So when you see it, you have to understand, oh, this is a point of attention for you as a spiritual seeker. When somebody angers you, that's, that's a hint. You know, that's, that's not somebody being, you know, mean to you necessarily. If you're seeing God in that person, you're going, we talked about this on Thursday morning, and it was helpful to somebody, so I'll repeat it. This idea that, take for example that you're washing dishes in the kitchen and somebody else is there with you, and they come over and make some insult about, oh, you never do that right, or something, or, you know, and you're, there's two ways you can react to that, okay? Normally, what happens? Defensiveness, right? Usually it's defensiveness. Like, what? What? <laughs> Who are you telling me how I, how I to wash dishes? Or, you know, I'm 52. I know how to wash a dish. What are you talking about? Get out of here. Or you want to do it? You know, any of those kinds of responses. We get angry. We've been insulted. But we have to the reason that you want to catch that, the reason you want to see that happen is because that betrays to you for your information. Mother's giving you information at that moment. She's not trying to offend you or hurt your feelings. She's trying to give you a little clue. This is the edge of your ego. This is how big your ego is. This is where it extends. Feel that boundary. Because there's nothing that can be offended in you except your ego your false identity of self, your small idea of who you are. If, in fact, you were seeing God in everybody and somebody comes in and insults you, you know, by definition, God loves you. So you don't see the ill or the, or the, or the malice in that person making some you know, derogatory comment to you. You assume it's coming from a place of love because, after all, God loves you. And all things work together for good to those that love God, you know. So you assume that, and you take it apart. You think to yourself, wow, how is that? How did I deserve that? You know, what did I see? Well, oh, wow, that is true. I'm not as careful, or I'm not fully present when I'm washing these dishes. Or, you know, wow, that is something I can work on. You take it in a completely different way. You take it as a help. You take it as something that builds you up, something that gives you an awareness, something that gives you a point of reference for something to work on, something that you can transcend. But if you see yourself as an ego, 
If you don't bring the divine into the picture and you see another ego over there, then it just becomes two egos bouncing against each other. There's no good promised in it. There's no, there's no growth to come from it. There's only reaction and whatever emotions come up from that. So it's one of those practical ways that mother is training you, that, that God is going to set you free. We know from Ramakrishna that we're all going home that everybody gets there. Some are going to get there sooner than others, but all of us are going to get there. And so you can take that to heart, and you can know that the next time that you, that you run into a situation where you feel the edge of your ego, where it's been manifested to you somehow, somebody has stepped on it, that's an opportunity for you. Mother has just loved you. <laughs> Mother has just taught you. She's poked you to say, hey, pay attention to this, look, see? If I poke harmlessly over here, you're getting angry. You know, I'm, I'm doing something that doesn't matter at all, you know, making a comment about how you do dishes, which in the greater scheme of things as the planets twirl around the sun doesn't matter at all. And yet you're reacting, yet you're feeling this, this incredible you know, need to justify or need to replace or, or to build up that wall again within, within yourself. So don't do that. This, this really is a separate way of teaching, or a different way, of teaching the yamas and the niyamas. That's what is actually happening in the practical sense of the word. Mother is teaching you the yamas and the niyamas, the do's and don'ts of how to realize God, of how to see divinity everywhere around you. So it takes something that, that a lot of times, you know, this list, and I wrote the list down here. These are the lists of... of the yamas and niyamas, uh, that, that comes from, from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. He starts off, it's one of the first things that you have to read and, and go through, and if you can make it through there, <laughs> then you, you can get some hope about going the rest of the way. But the yamas and niyamas, that's, that's the beginning. You know, the do's and don'ts, the morality, the how to live a good life. It's, it's, it's stuff that really most of us don't like. <laughs> We, and it's 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 really the part that gets that gets uh, preached most of the time on Sunday mornings. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And do this. Do this. Do this. Do this. But it's always it always stops right there, as if that thing is the important thing, as if the nonviolence is the important thing, or as if telling the truth is the important thing, or as if the self control is the important thing. They aren't the important thing. Again, you bring it back to that idea of the planets rolling around the sun. Who cares whether you're a nice person or not? You know, who cares? It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You're, you're smaller than a bug. And who cares what the bugs are up to, you know? So it's like that. But what makes it important? What makes it important is that it's your lens. It's your experience. It's the universe that you live in. It's the universe that you are having to experience. And if that universe that you are living in isn't one of bliss, isn't one of pure love, isn't one of, of, of just continual ecstasy and awe, <laughs> then you can change it. You can, you can replace it. And the world will change as your lens changes because you live in your own universe. Now, see, when we think about that, this idea, when we, when we don't understand that we live in our own universe, we give the outside world a great deal of value. Why? Because we're standing on the senses when we do that. 
And when you stand on the senses, the senses seem like the all-important thing. They seem like the, the, the grand scheme. Oops, I told you I was going to read the yamas and niyamas, and I didn't. Well, let me come back to them. So you, you're, you're, standing, you're standing on the senses, and the senses are making this world, this, this small universe that you've created, it makes it seem that it's bigger than you are. It makes it seem like it's the real thing, that it's the important thing, because you're not aware of that interior. Now, Jesus goes on in this, in this lecture that he gave, uh, and it's all from one lecture. That first part that I just read to you is only the first story that he tells. He goes on and tells several others. He tells a parable about asking and seeking, about the narrow and wide gates, about true and false prophets, about true and false disciples, and about wise and foolish builders. <laughs> Now, I see that I'm going to get past the yamas and the niyamas, and this is going to become the full lecture, so I'm very excited about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he takes us in, in these five or six parables, he takes us from this outer world to the inner world and then to the perfect world, to the way, to the way that this world actually is once you clean your lens and then you are able to create or are able to witness. You're not creating at that point. At that point, you're just witnessing divinity. You're witnessing the play of God and seeing it and understanding it as the play of God. You know, it becomes very real. So when this, once, you, once you stop, and that's why they're telling you, stop with the looking outward. Stop with making judgments about other people. Stop with placing your problems outside of yourself and handing the solutions to things that you don't have any control over. He's saying, stop doing that. Okay? Once you start understanding that, once you start turning it inward and understanding that all that you're seeing as faults and others is just you doing an inventory of the, salt, the faults that exist within yourself, once you've started working on that, once you've started seeing that, he says, then you've got to go one step further. You've got to turn inward. So to get away from looking out through the senses now, we have to turn around and look inward and go in search of the self. And Jesus goes on after he gave that first, that first little section, and he says this. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your child asks for bread, will give him a rock instead? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, you who the, then are, are, have this idea of a small self, you who are evil, he says, the, who knows evil, if you know how to do good things for your children, how much more do you think your Father in heaven is able to give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So you go inside and you ask for that divinity. You go inside and you knock. You, know, you go inside and you begin looking, you begin searching. Okay, the scriptures have given us a hint. The Christian scripture says that you're created in the image of God. And what is the image of God? God is love. So you've been created as an image of love. The Christian scripture is going to tell you that. The Vedanta is going to tell you, you are that divinity. You are God himself. 
only masked and disguised and confused, deeply ignorant. Go inside and find that truth. Go inside and begin looking for that truth. Ask for it in a sincere way. I always start my lectures, and I didn't today because I'm going to do it right now, with the three most important things in this quest, in this search. Right? To go inward and to have this happen. What's one? Earnestness and sincerity. Yes. Earnestness and sincerity. As spiritual seekers, that's number one for us. Keep it earnest and keep it sincere. The second most important thing, and actually these are all not in order. <laughs> They're all the most important thing. But the second, the second in the list of the most important things is what? Love. To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other as you love yourselves. That's the second most important thing. And then the third most important thing, truth. Honesty. Knowing. And that honesty involves this process here. You know, in the midst of, if, if, you, if you don't catch yourself soon enough and you let the anger build while you're washing dishes and you've just been insulted, if you don't catch it soon enough, you'll just be caught up in the anger and it'll just spin down and you'll go from there. If you can catch yourself at that point and use that sincerity and earnestness, use that love and use that truth, you can work your way out of it without having to suffer anger without having to suffer by harming somebody else or thinking, thinking things about others or being insecure about yourself in that sense. You can arrest that whole process and come to a new truth, come to a higher truth, a higher understanding. How? By assuming that person is God and by understanding that God has just touched the outer portion, portion of your ego to bring your attention to it to show you the dirt on your lens so that you can turn around and take that dirt on the lens and compare it to the perfect template that we've been given, that you are pure love, that you're a manifestation of God. And you can hold those two things together and you can say, okay, that's exactly where that scratch is. And then you can go fix it. You can go take care of it. And that divinity which is within you has promised you something, has promised you something very important has said something that you can take to the bank. He says, if you do seek, you're going to find. If you do ask, it is going to be given to you. If you knock, that door is going to open for you. That's one of the most beautiful things that we can take and walk away with. We're guaranteed success. We're guaranteed that relationship. We're guaranteed that vision. We're guaranteed a seat at the table, you know, of pure love and the presence of that beloved. He goes on to say, enter through the narrow gate for the wide gate is broad and the road that leads to destruction is wide and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So he's telling us here that this, that this journey of ours is going to take a lot of attention. You can't put it on autopilot. <laughs> no matter how good the self-driving cars get, you don't have a self-driving mind. <laughs> you have to drive this thing. You have to find this thing. And you need to watch where you're going and how you're living your life. If you're taking the easy way, 
chances are you're on the wide path. <laughs> chances are it, it's not helping you out. If you're taking the way that, that, you, that you're just being kind of carried along by the throng, that's not going to get you there. You have to analyze. You have to pull yourself back and say, no, 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 wait. Let's not do the easy thing. What's the hard thing here? You know, the, the, in, uh, in the Upanishad, the talk in, in Katu Upanishad, you know, it talks about taking the good over the pleasant. That's taking the narrow gate over the wide gate. You know, when the alarm goes off in the morning, that's our favorite example there. What's the wide gate? Look at your look at your look at your alarm clock. You'll know right away. How big is the snooze button compared to the alarm off button? Take the narrow one. <laughs> alarm off. Get up. Don't take the wide button. Snooze. Lay there. That's wide gate and narrow gate. Take the difficult walk. Take the difficult thing. You're sitting there. You've just been insulted at the dishpan. What's the wide gate? Shut up. <laughs> What's the narrow gate? Thanks. Is there some way I can do better? What, what did you have in mind? <laughs> er. <laughs> you know, take the, take the narrow gate. Take the narrow gate. And work it like that all the time. Sit there. Okay, you're going to meditation. Right? Oh, I'm really tired. Today I'm just going to do 40 minutes. Wide gate. <laughs> narrow gate. No, I'll do it. I'll do it the whole time. I'll sit here and do, do my very best on it. Don't lower your ideal. That's widening the gate. Keep your ideal when it comes to yourself very high. Always shoot for it. If you have to lower it, don't lower the actual ideal. Just create a second ideal, your working ideal. You know, I, I can't possibly do that, but I think I can do this. So for this amount of time, I'm going to do this. And when I've done that successfully, then we'll, we'll try and move the plank a little bit higher and see if we can do just a little bit better. <coughs> that's taking the narrow gate. That's, that's working on the self, always trying to clean that lens to become a, a more loving, a more compassionate, a more giving person. Not because you've practiced how to love and how to give and how to do all of those things, but because that's what you are, and it's finally able to come out because you're cleaning the lens, because that's what you are, you know, that divinity. And finally, it's able to come out and manifest itself. So take the narrow gate, take the difficult road. And then he says, you're going to need a teacher at some point. At the beginning of this, it's pretty much up to you. You can kind of, the yamas and niyamas, as long as you keep them there, you've got a lot of work that you can do on your own without that guru, perhaps, at the time, or that teacher. He says, but you're going to need a teacher. And he says, watch out. Watch out for false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire, and thus by their fruit you will recognize them. So if you're looking for a teacher, you can see this in the relationship between Vivekananda and Thakur Ramakrishna, that he tested him. You know, one time he took a coin. <laughs> this is strikingly similar to the princess and the pea story, but he, Vivekananda takes a coin and slips it under the mattress of Ramakrishna, 
and then comes to visit him the next day and asks him, how'd you sleep? <laughs> now, of course, that's a pretty extreme one because I would have slept well. <laughs> I don't know what that says. But uh, nonetheless, Ramakrishna tossed and turned all night and was so restless and, you know, because, because money was, was hidden under his mattress. So, I mean, that, of course, that's such a pristine level of purity. I mean, that, that Ramakrishna, testing Ramakrishna, you know, was, a, was an easy thing. But they also, the devotees got together and, and <laughs> that's almost a shame to mention. The devotees got together and, and sent a prostitute to him to try and, uh, you know, get him to fall. And Ramakrishna worshipped her as mother, treated her very nicely, was so sweet to her, sat there, and, you know. He saw, he saw only the Divine Mother, you know, brought the t prostitute to tears. She felt terrible for what she had tried to do, but also was given a beautiful sense of self-worth because Thakur spoke to the Divine in her and saw only the Divinity in her and changed her life for it. But he was tested as a teacher, you know, and that's very important, especially in this day and age. You know, I met somebody recently who had found a guru online Actually, I know two people who, who found a, a, a website as their guru, found a person who was doing a website, and began following them. Began, began doing that, never met them, didn't know anything about them, just started following the, these people's teachings. And I thought, well, that's, that's a very dangerous thing to do. You know, how do you know that that person knows anything? You know, there's very few teachers like Ramakrishna who actually know, who have actually seen the goal, who have actually experienced God, who have actually seen the divine. There's very few of those in the world. You know, but there's a lot of everything else. So you have to go through and be very careful. If you're going to choose a teacher, choose a teacher that has the yamas and the niyamas going. Now I'll read them to you. Here we go. These are your yamas and your, not, your do's and your don'ts. Practice nonviolence, not harming other people or sentient beings, and not harming oneself. Again, I'm going to take my opportunity to harp on my one favorite line. What is the tone of your inner voice when it talks to you? How do you speak to yourself? Is it violent? Is it mean-spirited? Is it judgmental? Is it angry when you correct yourself, you know, when you go through? Because it shouldn't be. That inner voice should encourage you. It should strengthen you. It should build you up. It should give you another opportunity. It should give you more determination and more strength. It should make you look higher and to be more inspired. So that inner voice, and if you get that inner voice going that way, the world outside will become nonviolent for you also. So nonviolence, truthfulness. Truthfulness, just telling the truth. <laughs> that can be a very embarrassing thing to do sometimes. But being honest. And being honest with yourself. And this is a big one when you get that letter that you sent to yourself in the mail listing all the things that are wrong with you. <laughs> we don't want to believe that it's in us, right? Although I might have a trace of it, but that person, that person is a full-on picture of it, I'm telling you. You know, uh-uh. Be honest. Sit there. Don't even be attached to your idea of being a good person. Don't be attached to that. Step aside completely. Hold this smaller self, this ego that you have to deal with. Understand that it's your mind and your body, that it's not you. There's no judgments about you. You're ever pure, ever free. You are that divine spirit. So you don't need to feel defensive when your faults become apparent, the faults of the mind, the faults of the body. You don't need to get protective of them. 
you can sit there and say, whoop, you got me. You're right. I was pretty selfish. I wasn't at all thinking about that other person. I wasn't at all about thinking uh, about doing the dishes better. <laughs> I was very much about justifying myself as I am. I was very much about making room for my vices so that I can continue to be comfortable in my delusions, you know, in this relative world that I've created, in this, this space that I'm comfortable as I am in. You know, don't do that. That's truthfulness. Not stealing. Don't take things which are not given to you. You know, you can take that for a, for a good long walk also. Swami Ramakrishna went through some extreme periods where his mood was, you know, very intense about that. You know, especially like when he thought about storing things up for the future. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't store anything. He, was every, he had to be, every moment had to be pure, purely depending on God. So not stealing. Brahmacharya. This writer, I, I, very, I very much like the way he, he translates this. He says sexual responsibility. Regarding others as human beings rather than as male and female bodies. Seeing others as divine. That's this, this, the, this, this sex idea. The scriptures talk about it all over the place. It's very fundamental. And it's a really big deal. And it's not because sex is good or bad in and of its own thing. It's not, that's, it has nothing to do with it. It has to do with how you define yourself. How you define yourself. Are you spirit? Are you spiritual? You know, we like to say we're spiritual. Everybody wants to be spiritual. What does that mean? That means that you're not material. You're not a body. If that means you're not a body, what does that mean? It means that, that there is no sex or gender there. You're free. You're ever pure. And that if you don't see yourself as male or female, if you don't see yourself as, as a body, a mind, then you won't see others that way. And what's the benefit of not seeing others that way? You then don't treat them as objects. You don't see them as objects. You see them as valuable. You see them as profound. You see them as inspiring. You see them as, as, as wonderful, you know, characters, stories of love unfolding, however you want to look at it. So brahmacharya, sexual responsibility, purity, and abstention from greed. Don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. And why not? Because there's nothing to be had in this world. So why go around collecting more of it? Why go around collecting more of it? I had a discussion one time with a, when back in the, training center, I guess it was around 2000. I was sitting there and I was getting a very nice compliment from one of the young brahmacharis, one of the young monks that was there. And he was talking to me and he said, uh, he said, um, um, actually, I was telling him the story. The story actually happened at Kolpara, a small village in India, where I, I was just a brahmachari at that point. I just joined months before that. And uh, I was visiting this center in India, and the Swami was there, and he had just shown me the temple, and we were walking around the compound together, and there was this very old man, a uh, very old Indian man, spoke absolutely no English whatsoever. And he came over, and Swami, he looked at me rather, rather puzzled, because I was in a dhoti, you know, a white dhoti and a white chatter and white everything. And uh, the Swami introduced me to him. Oh, this is uh, Brahmachari Vance. And, uh, and he introduced me to this old man, and he didn't speak a word of English. But he looked at the Swami, and he looked at me, and he looked at the Swami again, and he pointed at me, and he said, Brahmachari. 
And uh, the Swami was like, yes, yes, he's a brahmachari. That man began crying, got down flat on the ground, laid on the ground, and touched, touched my feet. I, was, I never had that happen in my life at that point. I was, I was looking at the Swami, and he was just standing there, no reaction, <laughs> looking at me, smiling. And I, I, I didn't know what to do, so I just kind of bent down and helped this old man stand back up again. And he was still weeping, and he was saying something to the Swami, and Swami kind of you know, touched his head and sent him on his way. And I asked, I asked, I said, Maharaj, what was, what, what was that? What was that all about? And he said to me, he said, see, he says that all of his life, he's been trying to renounce the little tiny bit that he has, you know, because he's a very poor man. And he says, he looked at you and you are such a young man and you come from the land of milk and honey, from gold and riches beyond his wildest dream and you've renounced, you've been able to renounce. And he, and he just, he said he was overwhelmed with that idea. Now I was, you know, so I went back to the, to the training center there at Bellarmont in Calcutta that night, and I was talking to this young brahmachari and telling him this, this story of what just, had just happened that day. And as we got talking, we kind of got to this point where we thought, wow, that's interesting. It's an interesting story because it kind of shows an odd perspective. And this perspective that I was thinking of goes like this. If you're on a beach and you're eating sand <laughs> and you've had one handful, you've had one teaspoonful of that sand, and then you say to everybody, I'm not going to have any more sand. I'm giving sand up. It doesn't, it doesn't taste good. It's not nourishing. I don't feel good. It's not doing what I wanted it to do. I'm not going to have any more. Was I a great person for that? Am I a great person because I realized that if a teaspoon of sand wasn't giving it to me, that eating a wheelbarrow of sand wasn't going to do it for me, and that actually consuming the whole beach wasn't going to do it good for me? It's the exact same thing. When you renounce the world, who cares how big the amount of it that you're renouncing? You've come to realize a teaspoon of this world isn't giving you what you need. Why think that you need two teaspoons? Why think that you need to work just a little bit harder to get a cup and a half of it? Or three pounds of it? Break that cycle of thinking. Understand the first time that you go and, and indulge in your vice and wake up the next morning not better, not happier, not, more, not closer to what you want to be. Understand from that first teaspoon that you took that it's finished. You don't have to look anymore. The answer is not there. You're not going to get anything. It doesn't matter how many more of it you go and accumulate. Renounce that teaspoon. Let go of those things. Let them go away. The abstention from greed. Now the things to practice. Cleanliness. Interesting. That's just a reflection of discipline, right? And a respect of the temple. The respect of the temple. What is the temple? This place, sure. We have karma yoga. We come and with great devotion clean this place. Every Saturday we have that nice time together here and then that big lunch. But that's just an external manifestation, an external practice of something that you do every day. And that's taking care of this temple. You get up, you shower this temple. You get up, you do your prayers for this temple. You go up and do your meditations for this temple to 
create a holy place, a holy atmosphere, a place where the divine spirit lives. You live with that kind of detachment. It's not your body. It's, your, it's the temple where the Lord resides. And you use it accordingly. You think of it accordingly. Contentment. Being content with what you have. I was in, I, <laughs> I was in uh, Hawaii in the early 90s. And uh, some, <laughs> some of the greatest wisdom can be found in a men's room. I was standing there, and on the wall right in front of me was this poster that says there's two ways to get rich in this life, earn more or desire less. I thought that was really cool. I had no spiritual inclinations at that time, but I walked away with that idea, and I understood. I thought, that's a great, that's a great thing. That's a great idea. Practice contentment. Practice being happy with what you have. How do you do that? by understanding that what you have has nothing to do with your happiness. And go inside and take a drink from that infinite love that's your nature. Go inside and take a drink from that infinite purity that is your nature. That infinite, that infinite immortality, <laughs> infinite immortality that is yours. Practice that contentment. That's the only way to do it. That's the only way to be content is to find that treasure that's within you by doing everything that we've talked about so far this morning. And the surrender of yourself to God and self-study. <laughs> Constantly polishing the brass pot. Keep your, read your scriptures. Why? To keep that ideal clear in your mind. To keep knowing what you, what, what you could be seeing through this lens if it was clean, if it was accurate. Also to make you a little bit discontent in the spiritual sense something to kind of rattle your cage a little bit to remind you that you're in a cage. You're trapped right now in a body-mind. A body-mind that's not clean, that's not pure, that doesn't see properly. So stay in contact with the scriptures to be reminded about that so that you don't get comfortable here. This world is not your home. There's a great song that goes like that. This world is not your home. You're just a traveling through. Your treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. <laughs> the good old foot-stomping Christian song. So go to God. Ask. It will give to you. Choose that narrow gate. Be careful of the teachers. And then he comes on to talk about true and false disciples. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. They didn't know God. You know, that's something that I, that I <laughs> sat with and meditated on, you know, because what's this guy saying? He's saying, you know, not everybody who makes, who makes the, an act of going to temple or makes an act of being religious or, you know, treats this whole setup like a punch card arrangement where you, after five visits, you get a spiritual bonus kind of thing. But that that earnestness and that sincerity come into play about your life here and your time here. So be a disciple that does what he reads, what she reads. Be the disciple that takes their spiritual life seriously and puts it in front of them, understands the purpose of this life is your realization. To know the divine, to know God, to be set free, to let go of all of the false ideas of self, and to live each day as if that really is your purpose. 
so that when you lay in bed at night, you can't think, what was the purpose of my day today? If somebody went through my day and listed out all the things that I did today, what did they amount up to? That I wanted to be a great accountant? That I wanted to excel in my job? That I wanted just to be a good dad? Whatever. Or will they say, wow, that person really wants to know God, really wants to know their nature, really wants to clean that lens to become a person of compassion, a person of great love, a person of great kindness and giving. So be a true disciple. And then he ends, as we will, with this story. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these spiritual words of mine and puts them into practice, that person is like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose. I'm thinking California at this point. (laughs) And the winds blew and beat against that house. And yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice That person is like a foolish man who has built his house on sand. The rain came, and the streams rose, and the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their ordinary teachers of the law. So build your house on that which does not change. What is the rock? That rock is that divinity within you. Within you is a soul that has been looking out through this body-mind, and it has never changed. It's perfect. It needs no change. Within you is an ever-content, ever-free spirit. Build your life on that spirit. Build your life on that identity. Build your life on the identity that I am pure love, that I'm Satchit Ananda, I'm intelligence. I'm existence. I am love absolute. Build your life on that. Make your decisions on that. Let your actions reflect reflect that. Choose your lifestyle based on that. Love based on that. Work based on that. That's how the wise man lives. And then when the winds of age come and when the floods of disease rise and when those days come to an end, Your house doesn't collapse because you weren't built on the ever-changing senses. You weren't built on the ever-changing aging body, on a temporary idea of self that passes, that crashes, that falls. So don't be the foolish man who builds on the sand of the senses. Be the wise man who builds on the rock of that notion of oneness with God, oneness with divinity, oneness with everything, all those things around you. Hafiz has a beautiful poem called The Suspended Blue Ocean. The sky is a suspended blue ocean. The stars are the fish that swim. The planets are the white whales I sometimes hitch a ride on. And the sun and all the light have forever fused themselves into my heart and on my skin. There is only one rule on this wild playground. For every sign Hafiz has ever seen reads the same. They all say, have fun, my dear. My dear, have fun in the beloved's divine game. Oh, in the beloved's most wonderful game. Let's take just a few minutes to sit and think about these things. Mm -hmm.